You're listening to Faith Community Church's weekly podcast. We hope this week's message from God is insightful and an inspiration to you. Uh, good morning. Uh, my name's Adam, uh, if you don't know me. Um, and before I, I get started um, talking today, I want to just take a moment to pray um, for our nation, for our world. Uh, you, you might not have checked your calendar, but today is like the 21st anniversary, I believe, of 9-11. Um, so I, I think it's appropriate just to, to begin with a word of prayer. Uh, Father, I'm sure uh, almost everybody in this room of at least a certain age uh, remembers uh, that morning 21 years ago. And, uh, and we all know that the, the world, the way we live in it, the way we understand it has changed uh, since then. And uh, the, the effects of it, um, the way it's, it's, it's seemingly put us uh, all on edge in the world ha- have not gone away. Uh, we are still living in a world of, um, of fear, uh, of division, and, uh, and we need you. So we lift, uh, <laughs> we lift up uh, our, our planet to you, the, the population of humanity worldwide. Uh, we just, we, we turn to you this morning and ask you to heal us. <clears throat> and I also ask you to, uh, to speak through me this morning. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um, not really feeding into my topic this morning. Uh, I didn't want to set false expectations. Like, I've got something to say that will, like, solve all that. Uh, I think God does. But, um, no. Uh, I actually want to start this morning talking about, oddly enough, my love of punk rock music if that feels uh, appropriate. Uh, that's something that's kind of, if you've known me, has, has defined me for a long time, since, uh, since early in high school. And um, I really kind of love talking and reading about the history of punk rock because it's an interesting evolution. Uh, I was uh, coming of age musically in the mid-90s when it was having a huge explosion through bands like uh, Green Day and The Offspring. But I, being kind of historically minded, was reaching into, I was interested in its roots in, uh, in New York and in London in the late 70s. I was far more interested in what, in what had been going on in the early 80s in LA and in Washington, D.C., and kind of watching what this movement was musically. Um, that was kind of built on its sense of marginalization, its anger, its clarity about who and what it was against, and uh, a worldview I honestly did not and still do not share, but I really thought created some great music. Uh, they, you know, they were angry about something, and it was passionate, and uh, it, it made some, some fantastic music. Um, until... It's weird for me to talk about this because I'm such a a split mind uh, of it, split mind about it. But in the late 90s, a band called Blink-182 blew up, and for all intents and purposes, punk rock was over. Um, uh, And and that's not to say that they were like an an awful band. But in terms of like punk rock having anything that it meant, having something that was about, being angry about anything— that was gone. Now, punk rock was a very, uh, it was no longer marginalized. It was no longer defined by being on the fringes. It was the mainstream. And it was about 
I don't know, girls and having fun and being funny and, and you know, uh, being good looking as those guys were. And it just sort of became the mainstream um, and turned into exactly what it had hated in the late 70s and in the 80s and all of that. And uh, that is my introduction because that's something that happens to a lot of things, right? Uh, lots of things go through that process. There's an early uh, strength in marginalization. Um, it, it's actually a boldness because of that. Uh, but then a desire for popularity will wear something down, water it down. Um, breeding compromise and the core gets lost. And, and Christianity has seen that happen to it multiple times. It's kind of gotten through that process over and over in history in different times in different places. You actually can see that happening. I, I think there's evidence that it happened right there in the early church. Uh, I'm going to start with uh, a passage for, uh, for today in Hebrews 5, if you want to read along with me. I'm going to be in Hebrews 5, starting in verse 11. This is kind of a hardcore passage. I'll admit, I'm a, I'm a little nervous this morning because I don't get to preach a sermon that's just kind of like make us all feel super good. Uh, the author of Hebrews wasn't super interested in that necessarily. Uh, he was willing to kind of lay it down on his audience and I think he's going to lay it down on us and, and here we go. Um, we're, we're just going to hear what this has to say. Um, this passage, like I say, chapter five, verse 11, it comes... In the context of like a chapter and a half of actually, yes, some very encouraging, beautiful teaching on, on who Christ is and his role as our great high priest mediating between us and the Father. And it's wonderful stuff. And he kind of breaks off all of a sudden in verse 11. And he says this, we have much to say about this, but, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Switching over into chapter six. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death, of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. Okay, um, some interesting background, well, maybe it's not that interesting, is we don't really know who the author of Hebrews was. Um, we don't know exactly who his audience was, other than to say these were uh, Jewish Christians. That's why it's the letter to the Hebrews. Uh, Jewish Christians living in the first century uh, who had apparently forgotten the core of the faith, the elementary teachings of the faith. And hearing what the author considers to be the elementary teachings of the faith is kind of interesting and, and humbling. Um, talks about cleansing rites, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. 
Uh, I don't know how elementary you find that, but I'm like, actually, that's sort of like second level. That's like, you know, 102, not 101, uh, at least I would think. But he's saying like, you guys have lost this stuff and we'd have to go over it all again. You've stopped trying to understand. Some heavy, heavy tone. But he's, uh, he's clearly concerned that the church of his time and place had fallen into a lack of clarity about their faith. And of course, that was not the last time this would happen uh, in the church. If you, if you study church history, um, it, it is a sometimes very encouraging, other times very discouraging cycle of these uh, reform movements, these revolutions, these revivals that then you go forward and, you know, you go a couple generations down and people tend to lose the core and you need a new revival, a new reformation. Um, so we're concluding this morning, this series on why are we doing this? Why are we doing church? Um, Andy started us off on that before he vanished uh, for the summer. Um, <laughs> But he started us off, you know, talking about the fact that we're doing this because Jesus told us to. He gave us the great commission to go make disciples of all nations um, and the great commandments to love God uh, and to love our neighbor. Uh, Nick uh, talked talked to us about how much the world needs us. It needs uh, a community that is not about itself, but about blessing others. And um, John up at camp talked about how uh, we do this because we need this. The world needs us, but, you know, we need this. We need this sense of formative community and uh, the way we, we encourage and build one another up. And then last week, Jeremiah talked to us about how we need hospitality um, in really both directions, right? We need hospitality extended to us, but we also need to develop our, our sense of hospitality and how to be welcoming to others. Today, Andy thought it would be a good idea for me to talk about clarity, uh, that we need, uh, along with all these other things, we as the people of God need clarity about the truth, the, the teachings of the word. And that's what I think uh, the author of Hebrews uh, felt. So let's, let's start here. I think in terms of clarity about why we're doing this. We're not doing this, at least not on our own, right? Right? The church is God's thing. God is doing this in us and through us. I think we have to start there. Um, God is up to something and he is graciously including us in what he's doing. And that really, I think, is the way to understand the Great Commission. He's sending us, us out to make disciples as extensions of himself. He, he goes before us. He is the context uh, in which we, we live our Christian life and, and do our Christian work. Um, but when you think about that, the fact that th- th- there's this level of, uh, it kind of seems like irresponsible risk God takes. He's like, okay, I've done this amazing thing in Jesus. I, you've heard about it. You've been touched by it in some way. Now go tell people about it. And he knows that we can oftentimes hear something and then try to repeat it and get a lot of it wrong, right? Uh, I'm a a high school teacher, so that's really obvious to me, but I don't know if you're aware that this happens. Somebody hears something like, oh yeah, I got it. And then, all right, tell me back to me what you just heard. And what? What comes out of the mouth can just be so far from what we actually heard. And that's why we need study. That's why we need as a, uh, a discipline of the Christian life, theology, 
Sorry. But it's because we have this ability to hear the gospel, to have it touch our souls. And we can feed on its healing power and all of that and then try to tell somebody else about it and then just say some things that we probably shouldn't have said. And then later we're like, did I say that? And it wasn't quite right. So without careful study of the scripture, without careful development of our abilities to speak clearly about our faith, we're just kind of prone to confusion, to kind of say some spiritual sounding stuff that is not quite the true substance of the Christian faith. And let me tell you uh, what I mean. From 2002 to 2012, um, a sociologist at the uh, University of Notre Dame and another one at the University of North Carolina, uh, Chapel Hill, led a team of researchers in what was called the National Study of Youth and Religion. And if you're interested in that topic, they've got a full, great website with tons of information, resources. They published uh, books articles. I've got a couple of them. Um, They interviewed uh, 13 through 17-year-olds. We're talking about like 3,370-something by phone. And there's a full, the website has a full manuscript of the questions they asked these teenagers about their faith. And then they did 260-something fly-in, in-person interviews with some of the same teenagers they they had talked to over the phone. Um, and then, so that, that first round was with like 13 to 17 year olds. They followed that up over the course of 10 years while that group moved through their adolescence into young adulthood, uh, just, just to talk to them about matters of faith and see what they believe. And their findings are, I think, super interesting. Um, number one, they show with pretty good documentary evidence that most teens, 75% identify as Christian in America. 75% of American teenagers as of 2002 through 12 identified as Christian. And that for the most of them, the vast majority of them was because their parents did, right? They they were adopting their parents' religion. 40% had some regular uh, attendance in a church community. They went to church or youth group or, or a combination of both. And all of that Um, which was kind of maybe the major motivation behind the study disproved what the sociologists had been saying in the like seventies and eighties that we were heading into a rapid decline of organized religion and that we were going to find generations more and more identifying as spiritual, but not religious, right? In the seventies and eighties, that was the prevailing theory that that's where America was going. And this study found like, nope, they're, they're kind of okay. Identifying with, at least outwardly, by name, traditional, organized, however organized, religion, right? I'm a Christian. And actually, if you look at the study, it's not even that. They're, they're not just calling themselves Christians. They're called, you know, no, I, I'm a Methodist. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Roman Catholic, whatever. They're, they're willing to own their specific denominational uh, affiliations, again, largely from their parents. Not all. I mean, we know teenagers. They can, they can want to break away. Um, but this is the more interesting thing that, we, that the study found. And I'm going to read a few quotations from a couple of the books that were published. This first one is from uh, Kenda Creasy Dean. Uh, she is a, a professor of youth ministry at Princeton Seminary. And she was on this research team. She uh, published a book called Almost Christian, 
which of the studies this, this group published, that's the easiest one to read. Uh, recommend that. Um, and she said this. Time and again in our interviews, we met with young people who called themselves Christians, who grew up with Christian parents, who were regular participants in Christian congregations, yet who had no readily accessible faith vocabulary, few recognizable faith practices, and little ability to reflect on their lives religiously. Right? You ask them what their religion is, like, I'm a Christian. We go to church. And then, again, you can read the script of questions. They they try to probe a little deeper and, like, ask about their, like, daily spiritual lives. And then it all kind of falls apart. And and ask them about sort of like, okay, so what do you believe about things like, you know, sin or salvation or those kinds of things? And and just the vocabulary is non-functioning for a whole lot of these these teens. Um, The next quote is from Christian Smith, who was the, the leader of this whole project. He's a sociologist at the, at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, he wrote a series of books out of these studies. The first and kind of main one is called Soul Searching. It's on the spiritual lives of teenagers. And here's what he says. Our impression as interviewers was that many teenagers could not articulate matters of faith because they have not been effectively educated in and provided opportunities to practice talking about their faith. He goes on to press that it's fairly clear that the American Christian teens are fuzzy on their theology because the adults are too, right? The teens aren't getting it because the adults don't have it to give. So ultimately, though, this study began as a study of uh, American teenagers in their faith. What the results were was like, actually, this is not a teenage issue. This is just sort of American Christianity in general. It's not just them. It's all of us. So. Why have we as American Christians become so theologically inarticulate? One last quote. And I'm sorry, this is the, this is the series. Andy said, you don't get to use any slides. So I don't get to put these quotes up. It would be a lot easier, I know, to follow these uh, on the slides. But I'll, I'll try to read it slow. It is not so much that U.S. Christianity is being secularized. Rather, more subtly, Christianity is either degenerating into a pathetic version of itself, or more significantly, Christianity is being actively colonized and displaced by a quite different religion. That's the kind of big takeaway from all this study, is that what's going on in American Christianity is that something other than Christianity is actually taking its place within church communities across America. And he has a name for what he calls that other colonizing alternate religion. And it's kind of big. So I'll take a minute, but he calls it moralistic therapeutic deism. Catchy, right? You can see churches popping up all the time. First church of moralistic therapeutic deism. Uh, But yeah, no, he says like, that's the bet. That's the more accurate thing to call the actual lived, believed, practiced faith by most Americans. You really shouldn't be calling it Christianity anymore, even though they are. People that are calling themselves Christians don't seem to realize that the things they actually believe and the way they live have radically departed from Christianity historically understood or biblically understood. And it would be more accurate to call it moralistic therapeutic deism. Let me unpack that and I'll go backwards. Deism, let's start with that. Deism is an outlook which basically puts God in the background, right? Deism believes that God created the world, but that he did so in a way that makes the universe more or less self-sustaining. So you have to appeal to God to explain where the universe came from, 
But day to day, he's just kind of up there watching over us, you know, thinking nice thoughts for us and sending them down, but otherwise kind of staying up there. So as opposed to traditional Christian, what we call theism, which sees God as creating the universe and sustaining it at every moment. And, and so having this sort of constant presence in our lives, sustaining the universe and us, right? Deism is differentiated by saying, no, God created the world, but then the world, it, can, it has these sort of laws of cause and effect, and it sort of takes care of itself, and we take care of ourselves, and he watches over us. Um, so prayer doesn't really make a lot of sense in deism. But to be clear, when, when Christian Smith says that we've become moralistic therapeutic deists, he's, he's, he's saying not actually, like we wouldn't actually subscribe to deism historically understood. It's just that we act like it for the most part. The difference is when somebody's in a crisis, right? When someone's going to the hospital or there's a, just a big life thing going on you're not able to deal with, that's when we pray. But otherwise, we're functionally deists. Kind of leave God in the background. So rather than God at the center and us getting drawn into what he's up to, we're at the center. God's pushed to the periphery unless we kind of need him to get us out of a bind. You know, we need him to solve a problem. So therapeutic means God wants us to be happy, right? We're, we're therapeutic deists. We, we have a belief in this God whose basic desire is for me and for you, maybe you, me, to be happy. Um, if you're a deist, why do you even care about God? Because sometimes we face difficulties in life that are a problem because they keep us from being happy. They get in the way of my happiness. So in this religious outlook, you can pray or you can find very selectively curated Bible passages that make you feel good. And they kind of, you know, pump you up and they give you that encouragement, that motivation, and you're, you're happy again. So, it, so the faith is basically therapeutic. And then the moralistic part is God wants us to be good, be nice. Be, you know, be fair, be a, be a nice person, whatever, just do your best, right? It's that kind of watered down. Uh, it's, it's definitely not love your enemy. It's definitely not take up your cross. It's be good, be, be a good moral person. So in summary of this religious outlook, what does God want from us? Be good. What does he offer us? Happiness. And, and then mostly to leave us alone unless we need him to, uh, to solve a problem. This the research is saying is the version of Christian faith most Americans are walking around with. No sin, no sacrifice, no salvation or, or adoption into God's family or the power of the Holy Spirit. Certainly nothing, nothing like the resurrection of the dead or eternal judgment. Nope. Um, just be good, feel good. God's there if you need him. Uh, and again, that's not what they're saying is outside the church. That's not secularism. That's not what's coming in to attack us from the outside. It's what's colonizing the faith from the inside. Um, it's what happens when we don't go beyond milk to solid food. It all kind of spoils and turns into this bland mush. To be honest, it's what happens when we boil the faith down to love God and love others. We, we are a kind of keep it simple culture. We like to boil it down for me. And so we're 
pretty attracted to the fact that there's like a passage in the gospels where Jesus says the greatest two commandments, right? Love God, love your neighbor. And we forget that what he's summarizing is the law, right? He's not summarizing the faith. He's not summarizing the gospel when he gives those two commandments. He's summarizing the law his people have failed to keep, which is why he came, right? He's not telling us that we are capable of doing that. When he says that those are the two great commandments, he's not telling us that like on our own, apart from like God's intervention and the power of the Holy Spirit, that we can just choose to love people and, uh, and, and love God. The history of Israel, the whole Testament, I think is there to show us that that doesn't actually work out. And actually, I think if we just kind of look at our own lives, we're like, oh yeah, no. Even if I boil it down to that simple, that doesn't actually get me anywhere. It just reminds me of how much I, how bad I am at loving God and loving my neighbor. Um, the gospel points us to Jesus as the one who actually kept those commands. The one who actually has loved God and loved us by coming for us to reconcile us to God, to bind us to God's love, showing us how to love God and love our neighbors and empowering us by his Holy Spirit to do so as well, right? It's not a power we have in ourselves. It's a power we, we are given with the gospel in Jesus. So moralistic therapeutic deism, the faith of so many kind of boil it down Christians is that God is in heaven watching over us on earth, hoping we do good and feel good. But the gospel has the father sending the son from heaven for us, establishing a bond of love, the, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit between him and us and among us, binding us together as his body. That's a much, that's much more solid food. <laughs> that's a much richer meal than the, uh, the milkshake of moralistic therapeutic deism. So, why are we doing this? Why do we keep getting up, coming every Sunday, sometimes having a crusty theologian telling us we got to do more theology? Why do we do that? Because <clears throat> along with everything else we've heard over the past month or so about the fact that, that Jesus has told us to do this and the fact that the world needs us and we need each other, we also need to soak in the gospel together to preserve its purity, to maintain the purity of the gospel so we can share it with clarity to the outside world. I'm going to invite the band back up. But as I close, I do want to say a couple of things. Um, I realize a lot of what I've said sounds like a theology nerd telling people to feel guilty if they're not theology nerds. I get that. And I grant that it's a little bit true. Um, I, I think every Christian should be a theology nerd. I do. Uh, I, I'm sure that's just me wanting everybody to be more like me. I, I don't think that. I think all of us should want to know the Lord with all of our heart, our soul, and our mind. I, I don't think this is an individual thing. I think this is an us thing. This is a, what makes us this community is just this passionate love that involves all of us, our, our whole selves. But 
I also just want to make clear, none of us does this perfectly. We all do it in our own ways, right? There's different ways of, of loving God with your mind. I totally get that. And we need each other to, to help us along that journey. So if that's something that's tugging on you, if that's something that feels like I, I, I really don't want the result of this sermon is anybody feeling guilty. Like, oh man, I really, you know, I don't know my, my Bible that well. I don't know theology that well. And I just feel like a doofus. I really don't want that to be the outcome of this. But if there is a little bit of tugging, if there's a little bit of like, well, okay, maybe I do want to grow here. What can I do? Let me point you to three things. First, right outside this room, we actually have a like one shelf library. We have books that can help with this. There's one especially I recommend. If, you, if, if theology is just never something you've dipped your toe into, to try to kind of get your head about, around the gospel intellectually, there's a, a fairly short paperback book out there called uh, Delighting in the Trinity by a guy named Michael Reeves. And I've heard from multiple people how much this has helped them in their, their spiritual and, and theological lives. Um, I would be eager to chat with you about it. Uh, if you wanted to read that book, we can nerd it up out and linger longer. Um, second, if, if you're more of a watch and listen type than a sit and read type, which I get, uh, I actually, you know, to be honest, I don't love reading myself all that much. Um, but if that's you, if you just really are like George Costanza and just can't get through page one of Breakfast at Tiffany's. If you've seen that episode, I just watched it. I was like, yep, that's us. We don't like reading. Uh, there's a website called the Bible. Pro uh, it's just Bible Project. No, the BibleProject.com. It is such a wealth of resources. Uh, there is a video explaining every single book of the Bible, not explaining it away. Like it just tells you what the, what the book says so you don't have to read it. It sets you up to actually want to read that book. It gives you like an outline, the structure, the motivation for its writing, the historical context. It makes you feel like, okay, I could actually read this and know what's going on. I really recommend that. But then beyond all the, the introduction to books of the Bible videos it has, it has videos on uh, different themes from the Bible, doctrines, it explains some theology, and it does it in like five to 10 minute video increments. Uh, and the guys that make it, you know, they know their stuff. The, uh, the, it's not watered down cheesy Christianity. No, it's, it's actually really, really good. Um, but then third, because we need each other, because we don't just need books and videos for us to go off into our closet and do by ourselves. We need to do this together. Um, starting October 9th, the week after the connect class, I'm going to lead a, a four-week study in like basic Christian theology. Um, we're going to take a look at the Nicene Creed. If you've never heard of that, that's on our church website under the like, what do we believe? That's it. That, that's our church's statement of, of faith, the Nicene Creed. So I'm just going to kind of briefly go over the, the history of that, of that document. And then we're just going to kind of walk through what it talks about. Um, it goes over the Trinity, like the most intimidating and daunting of Christian doctrines, like three in one. We're going to go through that and why it matters and why actually I think it could revolutionize your prayer life. If you've, if you've just kind of been standing off from the doctrine of the Trinity, like I don't get it. Come, we'll talk about it. Uh, we'll talk about the doctrine of creation, salvation, the church, 
the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, like the author of Hebrews said, and those, those sound like fun topics. Uh, I, I promise we'll, we'll make it not too daunting. Um, but we're going to do that not just to kind of be smart and, and, and learn how to be right. That's definitely not the point. The point is worship. The point is loving God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is what we're going to do now together as we turn to worship God um, in song. So let me pray before we do that. Father, thank you that you, you are up to something. And you haven't stopped being up to something since Christ walked this earth. That you sent your Holy Spirit and your Holy Spirit works and continues to work. And when you call us into this work of hearing your gospel, being transformed by it, binding us to one another as members of your body and sending us out into the world, uh, you, you don't just leave us to try our best that you are in us and with us by your Holy Spirit. We thank you for that, Father. And we just pray that this community uh, would, would be a place in which you are sensed, that people uh, maybe who have been in the church for a while or maybe people who have been on the periphery of it as they, as they walk in, <coughs> in these doors or to spend time with this, this group of people see that you are here and that you are doing something. And I pray that we would be able to talk about that with clarity and, and conviction. We love you, Father, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this production of Faith Community Church in Santa Cruz, California. To visit our complete archive of sermons, to learn more about FCC, or to view our live streaming services, please visit us online at santacruzfaith.org. Thank you.